Turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to John's Gospel, John 19. Once more we stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Living God, not the Word of Man. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we rejoice that your word is true. The word is Christ, the living word, eternal with the Father. Come down to the children of men, coming to redeem those who were unworthy, unseeking, unrepentant, coming to bring life to those who were perishing. And fathers, we hear the word. We pray that you would magnify your name and that your spirit would be at work, both in the preaching as well as in the hearing, granting us understanding and giving us a heart of truth. The Christ be magnified in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> to God be the glory. Great things he has done. Now, usually when it's uh, that Sunday that we remember uh, more specifically or uniquely the resurrection, we say, he is risen. In response, he's risen indeed. We don't, don't do such a thing when we're thinking about Christmas. But really, I would have us to remember we are to mark these things every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day is a remembrance of the resurrection, which should always be a remembrance of the incarnation. And it is a providence that here we are in John 19 in the crucifixion on a day when uh, some of the world is recognizing that Christ had come, that God was incarnate. Multitudes today are thinking of a babe in a manger, no crib or a bed. And so many Christians approach Christmas, Christmas with sentimentality and, and nostalgia, hoping to have some childhood memory recreated or make a new one that they can rehearse for years to come. But our text this morning, morning arrests us with such simple-mindedness to this approach. Some might think it's totally insensitive for a preacher to choose to preach from John 19 on Christmas Day. But I say to you, this text has everything to do with Christmas in the Incarnation. Uh, we, we sing in some of the good hymns of the Incarnation that remember why Christ came. And next week it's my intention to pick the one where it talks about the, his brow pierced, his side pierced. Yesterday, my wife and I went over to Quinnesset and Jonathan Soul, whom you heard from this pulpit, was preaching from Simeon's uh, response upon seeing the Christ. And you remember that he goes on to tell Mary that her own heart will be pierced, recognizing that the Lord's Christ, the Lord's salvation, uh, is not just a, a simple story of a, a once-a-year event. Indeed, it involves mighty, massive, cosmic, events that take place. And so this is where we find ourselves this morning. We've worked our way through John's Gospel. According to John, we've heard his account and then week by week for about three years now, as far as the calendar goes. And I'm pleased because this text ties together the incarnation and the crucifixion. Right before he dies, Jesus declares, it is finished. Marvelous words, majestic words, uh, as I would say to you, it's like a thunderclap. It is finished. Jesus announces that he has accomplished everything the Father has given him to do. And this thunderclap reverberates across the spiritual realm of that day and across the course of human history. For this is the monumental moment. J.C. Ryle, the English preacher of the uh, 1900s, says, quoting now, it is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ from the cross, none is more remarkable than this, which John alone records. The precise meaning of this wondrous expression, it is finished, 
is a point which the Holy Ghost has not thought good to reveal to us. Close quote. There's no, there's no commentary. You know, we've noticed that John at various points with significant events of John will insert a commentary. He'll explain things. We see that in Luke's gospel as well, where there's an explanation of things that might be, might be difficult to understand. But I would say to you, we can look at the word of God. We compare scripture with scripture, and we come away with an understanding, at least in part, that it is finished means great things. It's a significant context. Uh, text, we can conclude this. What's finished? What's established? What is secured forever? We're going to look at some of these things, but we must acknowledge we cannot plumb the depths of it is finished. You look at the book of Revelation, where John, this same author, is given a glimpse into the majesty of heaven, and there he sees the exalted Christ. And I would say to you, it is not until then that we will begin to fully comprehend what this, it is finished. These three words mean. This covenant of peace that God made, a covenant between the three persons of the Trinity before the foundation of the world, so that in the fullness of time, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would come into the world, born of a virgin, take humanity to himself. He would come into the world in humiliation, that he would suffer. Even his lowly birth was so often as recounted. Counted his family answers. The family of David coming to Bethlehem, and yet there's no room for them. This humble beginning. And yet he's the mighty one who came to save his people from their sins, which is why the angel Gabriel told Mary that this child that she would have, a son, that his name should be Jesus, for he shall save his people. From their sin. When you use four main headings, you find them there in your worship God, following along with the title that is finished. We're going to just look at some of those things, so we can only look at them briefly. Uh, for surely uh, uh, a year's worth of sermons would not exhaust the topic of it is finished. It is finished the second Adam obeys. It is finished promise and prophecy fulfilled. It is finished salvation accomplished. I hope some of you are thinking of John Murray's book, Accomplished and Applied. It is finished. The Redeemer reigns. So we begin with the second Adam obeys. And, and of course, with this, we, we go all the way back to Genesis 3. We hearken back to where we were at um, in, Gen- in Genesis, I think it's been about four or five years ago. We were in Genesis 3. And, and we saw here Adam, whom the scripture recounts to us, that he is the Son of God. Not in the same sense that Christ is, but he's the first human created. Out of the dust of the earth, God formed man, and God, unlike the other creatures that God created, he breathed life into Adam. He is the offspring of God, God's creation at the very pinnacle of creation. This one, who, with his wife, who God will later make for him from his side, these two, male and female, are the image bearers of the living God. This Adam is there, set by God in a garden of such abundance, such provision, nothing lacking, of fruits of every sort of kind, a beautiful place, a place of perfect harmony and peace. But God forbid him one thing. There was one tree that God said, you shall not eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's given Adam a test. And we conclude from Scripture, we conclude from what Christ has done, that if an Adam, that first Adam, had been faithful uh, through a probationary period to be obedient to God and to keep God's law, that he would secure for his posterity eternal life. But he didn't. He took of the tree that God had forbidden that he did eat. Out of rebellion, he turned away from God. He ate of the forbidden fruit. He sinned against God. And when he did so, as God had promised, he died. And that death was immediately manifest because he and his wife with him were mindful that they were naked. And so they hid themselves. And we, you remember that when we were preaching through this, they, they took and created for themselves coverings. They covered their reproductive organs because they were mindful that not only were they sinners, but their children would be born in this sin. Adam failed. Adam rebelled. Adam sinned. All of humanity 
descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in that transgression. We're conceived in sin. In, in, in a very conception at the beginning of our life, there is an aspect of us that is dead. Spiritually, we are dead. Spiritually, we are apart from God because of sin. We are rendered impossible. It is not possible for us to commune and fellowship with the Holy God of Heaven. This is what Adam brought into the world. Our catechism from the Westminster Christ says, The covenant be made with Adam not only for himself, but for all his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. The whole of the human race died and came under the curse of God for sin. Therefore, we are all conceived in sin and we're born spiritually dead. It's hard to believe that. You know, many of you here, you, you've had children born to you in God's tender mercy. And you take hold of that child and you marvel and wonder at the life. It is a gift of God. It's an expression of the tender mercy of God that God still brings life into the world. But every single child that is born from a mother and a father is spiritually dead. Out of fellowship with God. It's only by the gracious working of God's Holy Spirit to regenerate, to recreate, as Jesus told Nicodemus, born again. And to have a new heart from God. It is only in this way that we're alive. Otherwise, we're spiritually dead. We're apart from God. We're in rebellion against God. But you remember in Genesis 3, right after this event of sin, God came. He comes to Adam. He comes asking him questions. He asks Eve a question. And then he begins to pronounce judgment. He pronounces judgment on the serpent. Notice he does not ask the serpent question. You remember that I said to you, God asking question gives man an opportunity to repent, to confess, to own up. There's no hope for Satan. There's no salvation for Satan. There's no possibility of repentance for Satan. And so God begins by pronouncing judgment on the serpent and then consequences for Eve and consequences for Adam, which endure to us to this day. But to the serpent, he says that there will be a sea of obedience. It's a message of hope, uh, even as he's addressing the serpent, that this seed of the woman will crush his head, though the serpent will bruise the heel of this seed of the woman. And there God uses the pronoun, he will crush your head. And who is this seed of the woman? This is the first announcement of the gospel. Sin has just occurred, and God comes as the first evangelist, the great evangelist, the eternal evangelist, and he pronounces hope and mercy and salvation in a coming seed of the woman. Surely Adam and Eve did not comprehend what we now comprehend with the fullness of God's revelation in the 66 books of the Bible. But we see the evidence. They believe God's promise. For he brought forth a son. She said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. It's an expression of faith. Here's the seed. He from the Lord has come forth from me. But of course, this seed of the woman points to Christ. And in the fullness of time, Paul writes in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Here's the seed of the woman. Born under the law. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is the long expected one. God sent his only begotten Son into the world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's interesting. There was an anticipation. You remember, we, we talked about this earlier, John, that at the time of Christ's coming, there was an anticipation. And it should not surprise us because I was reminded when I heard Jonathan preaching from Luke 2 that Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the salvation of Israel. It was an expectation, and God had even told one of his choice servants that Christ would be born before he died. And indeed, in the fullness of time, Christ came into the world. Jesus, the only begotten Son, Son of God, who came from heaven, the person of God, took to himself our humanity. I think it's important to guard language to say he became human. He remains fully God, but he took to himself our humanity. Join that humanity with his deity in a way that there's no confusion or blending. There's no fusion or mixing. Fully God, fully man, two unique natures, yet one person, the Son of God, came into the world. Of his humanity, from the Virgin Mary. 
concerning his, his origin. He's the eternal God. But it was the Holy Spirit that hovered over Mary as he did over creation in the beginning. And the Christ child was conceived in her. And he came then as the seed of the woman to defeat Satan. Oh, blessed truth. That he came forth from God to defeat Satan, to deliver his people, to rescue us, to bring us home to God. Now we need to understand that Adam did not represent Christ. We, a moment ago we were using the catechism that, Christ, uh, that all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation. Adam represented all of them. They all sinned. All humanity sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. But he did not represent Christ. Christ is a new representative. Christ has a, a people that the Father has given to him, and he came on their behalf. And it is Paul that picks up on this in Romans as he talks about the second Adam. He came to represent his people, all those whom the Father had given to him in eternity past, a people that he would come in to the world to live obediently for their sake and to die the death that they deserve and to be raised to life that he might raise them to life this is the second birth. Jesus came into the world and he lived obediently. He lived that life that you and I cannot live. Even you young children, you know how many times in the course of the day, young children, you remember that your parents have to correct you, ask you, what have you done? Don't talk to me that way, your mother might say. You're so disobedient. You see that even you young children, you're mindful of your own sinfulness, your own need of a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Paul writes of these two Adams in Romans 5. You can turn with me to Romans 5 and we can look at verse 8. This will be familiar to those of you that have been here for a while. It was before Genesis we were in Romans. Romans 5, verse 8, we find Paul writing, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The preamble of John opens to Jesus is life. Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room, he is life. Paul, again, connected with that. We are saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus reconciles us with God. He deals with our sin problem. He raises us to newness life, forgives our sins, and he brings us to God. We are reconciled to God. The schism that was brought about by sin, the fracture and the breaking of man from God in the garden, Jesus comes to heal, and he brings his people to God. Going on, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sin. This is the first Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world, and sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, uh, who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Paul saying there's this Adam in the garden who's pointing to another, to Christ. And then he goes on, giving this contrast. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, that's Adam, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification to life. The two Adams, the first Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to speak of it very distinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 
The first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. <coughs> we are dead in our trespasses. The last Adam came to give life to sinners. Jesus came to accomplish what Adam failed to do. God knew that. He knew that that was the case. He had decreed it. It was already covenanted between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that Christ would come thus in the garden. The Father announced to Adam and Eve, to the serpent, that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and defeat sin, death, and the grave. He came to secure eternal life. Do you remember when we were in John 17? Just back a page or so, a few Sundays back. We hear Jesus beginning his prayer. What does he say as he prays to the Father? And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Jesus came to the world. What did Adam lose? That relationship with God, to know God. He walked in the cool of the day, as Moses writes it in Genesis 3. In the pleasing time that God would visit them, and there was communion and fellowship, eternal life. There was life in Adam. But Adam sinned. And it was lost. And Jesus came to bring this eternal life to the children of Adam. And so when Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. That's one of the things he's talking about. He's come. The second Adam. He's come to undo and to set right. He's come to bring salvation to those who died in Adam. He brings life to the ones that the Father has given to him. And when he cries out, it is finished. This is finished. The second Adam has been faithful. He has been obedient. He has secured salvation, even at the cost of his life. He's on the cross. And we notice back in verse 28, knowing that all things were now as accomplished, everything that was necessary to secure life for his people was done. <coughs> Thus he could cry out, it is finished. Satan's head is crushed. The chains of sin are loosed. God with justice can give life to sinners because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This is why Jesus came into the world, to save sinners. But it is finished also, secondly, it is finished promise and prophecy fulfilled. We will just touch on a few prophecies. You remember a few weeks ago that I said to you there's something like 833, I may be off on that number a little bit, prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in him. And the statistical probability of that happened is one in uh, something like a million, 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 million. It's just only God could do such a thing. Prophecy. Promise fulfilled. We've already looked at Genesis 3.15. It's prophetic. God proclaiming what he will do. It's a promise of what God will do. We've seen how Christ has accomplished that. But then we pick up a little later in Genesis 12. You remember from Genesis that you see man failing to the point even that when those who were the sons of Seth married with the daughters of men, that the whole of the human race became only evil continually in every way, shape, and form. And God sent a flood and wiped out the earth. But to preserve Noah, Noah, a righteous man, and his family in an ark. But then afterwards, immediately afterward, God begins to deal with one man. He calls Abram. Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. There's no such a thing as Jew and Gentile. There's the nations of the earth, and God begins with Abram. And he makes a covenant with him. He says, get up and leave this place and go to the land that I will show you that I will give to you. And then later on, he begins to speak to him, to be a God to him. And he establishes a covenant sign and seal with Abraham in Genesis 17. He changes his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations. And Abraham has no sons. He's got an illegitimate son from Sarah's slave woman, but God has a plan, and indeed God gives Abram a son in his old age. Even Sarah, who's beyond the years to bear, gives forth, brings forth a son, a son of promise, pointing to Christ. Even Isaac is a picture pointing to Christ, an impossible pregnancy, and yet God brings it about. Likewise, an impossible pregnancy, a virgin to be with child, God brings it about. Jesus was a son of promise. Abraham's son points to that one. And God promises to Abraham that he was descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Think about that, children. 
Abraham was 100 years old, and his wife was 90. But nothing's too difficult for God. He made a promise, and he kept it. And it's from Abraham. We have Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And Judah has 12 sons, and Judah's son... I'm sorry, we have Jacob. And from Jacob's sons, we have Judah, whom Jacob, when he's dying, and he pronounces promises and prophecies over his children, he says of Judah, from whom the scepter shall not depart. And as Judah then becomes the line leading up to David and ultimately to Christ. God promises David, who is born of Jesse. God speaks of him being a man after his own heart. And he establishes David as king over all Israel. And God promised that his kingdom would endure forever. In Psalm 89, we'll sing it part of it a little bit later on in our service. We have this recounting of the covenant that God made with David. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Notice the language. Your seed. The seed of the woman of the garden goes to Abram. Your seed, through whom your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blasted. And now to David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. God is at work making promises and they're kept in Christ. Our shorter catechism 22 says, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? This Son of David, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her without sin. This seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, is David's greater son, whom David the eye of faith saw down the courses of history, and he calls him Lord. And that son, Jesus, confounds the Pharisees who were filled with cynicism and unbelief. He says, how is it that David speaks of his son and calls him Lord? Because no one would ever do this. The younger is supposed to honor the elder. And yet David honors his great-great-great-great-grandson who came forth because he's more than just a son. He's a son of God. But he is David's son. And you see this as Luke records Mary's genealogy. Mary's in the line of David, a descendant from David. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, just as was foretold by Isaiah to King Ahaz. God's promised King Ahaz that he's going to deliver them from his enemies. And Ahaz is like, God says, ask me for a sign. Ahaz says, I won't do it. God says, I'll give you a sign. Notice what he says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. A promise. 700 years before it takes place. And it's a promise that was kept. Christ came. And in order to establish David's line as a, a kingdom would live forever, you need a king who's eternal. And Jesus is that one. The Son of God, who is the everlasting God, has come to earth, taken humanity, and he goes forth as a king, accomplishing the work of salvation. As our king, he subdues all his and our enemies. And what is the chief of those enemies? Sin, death, hell, destruction. Jesus came, and he defeated them all. And where did he defeat them all? He defeated them on the cross. And when it was accomplished, all the scripture be fulfilled, the pronouncement. It is finished. All that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David, and even to Mary when she was yet but a young woman before she was conceived. It was a promise made her. It's all fulfilled. The promise to Mary that she would have a son who would be the savior of the world. Indeed, as he hung on the cross, his work complete, he says, it is finished. All these connected to and flowing from the plan of God for our salvation. But thirdly, it is finished. Salvation accomplished. To go back to our catechisms, beautiful unfolding is a speech of Christ that talks about when God has come. Adam sinned, questions and asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Would he have been just to? Every head should be nodding. But God had a plan of salvation. God had appointed one 
to redeem us. The answer then is given, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity. Notice the language, eh? You know, God because he owed it to man? No. A thousand times no. God out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life to enter into a covenant of grace not with man. He entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. Who is that covenant made with? His son, who was appointed to be the redeemer. This was God's salvation plan. And the next question is, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect. My friends, this message is offensive to the world, but it's the truth. And it's the message we must proclaim. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. This is the work of God unfolding. We saw it in John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. Here the God-man, Jesus Christ, hanging in the place of sinners. That cross should have been our cross. The wrath that Christ endured should have been our wrath that we received from God for our sins. But God supplied the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He suffered and died to deliver those bound in sin. Bound and suffering the wages of sin, he suffered in our place. And Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross. And thus, when all things were accomplished, he were carried out and is finished. But what was necessary for our salvation? Just give you a quick a quick reminder, perhaps an introduction to some of you. What was necessary is our justification. Children, that's, that's a theological word with great significance. We have no right standing before God. Our sins have rendered us unable to stand before God. We are apart for God because of sin, and we need to be made right before God. We need to be justified, and that's what Christ has done. His righteous record becomes ours because he's paid our record of sin and satisfied God's judgment. And so what we understand this justification, notice the language, we have nothing to do with this. It's an act of God's free grace. God's gift. Wherein he pardons all our sins. Not just with a sweep of his hand. He pardons all our sins. What? And accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ. Imputed, credited, accounted to us by God. And we receive it by faith alone. And remember, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that faith is also a gift from God, that God should have all the glory. There's a wonderful little skit on uh, Babylon B, um, and it's some Texas, some California moved to Texas, and some of the, the stark cultural experiences they have. Well, they end up in a church Sunday school class. And the husband's drawn in, and his, her, his wife is irritated about the whole thing. And he persists, and he goes, he says to her, and I love this point, he says, Honey, did you know that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin? That's all we have. That's so true. And God has accepted us in his son. But more than that, we need, or in addition to that, we need sanctification. This is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live under righteousness. Justification was finished, secured, satisfied on the cross. Our sanctification was also finished and secured by the Lord Jesus on the cross. But thirdly, our adoption. This too is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to the privileges of the sons of God. Along with all these benefits which come to us by God's grace, this salvation that he's accomplished and we're hearing is being applied. God, by the Spirit, works in us. We take us back to John 3. Nicodemus came at night. He's fearful of the religious establishment, but he's intrigued by Christ. He comes to see Christ without his questions, and Jesus goes right for his heart, goes right to the issue. He starts speaking of his need for what? He must be born again. God's the one that does this. God is the one that acts. And how does he have to do it? He says, you must be born from above. 
You must be born of the Spirit. Whether we're young children or adults, salvation is the same. It is of God. We must be born from above. We must be born of the Spirit. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what Christ has secured for us, along with this, all these other benefits that accompany and flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. <coughs> Assurance of God's love. Secured by Christ on the cross. Assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience. When we're under conviction for sin and to see in our need of Christ, our conscience is disturbed and troubled. The laws thunder that we are guilty sinners. And yet when we're in Christ, the peace of conscience. We stand right before God. Joy in the Holy Ghost. Indeed, how can we have anything but joy with what God has accomplished? Jesus secured our joy in the midst of his suffering on the cross. And an increase of grace, God continues to work into us, pouring his spirit into us, enabling us to grow in holiness, that the sanctification of Christ is secure, become more and more evident in our lives. And then he also is secured for us, Christ secured for us. <coughs> Perseverance. That we persevere in these things, even to the end of our days. So Paul celebrates in his last letter, as he writes to Timothy, I kept the faith. I've completed the race. I fought the good fight. He finished well. That should be our prayer for one another, for ourselves, that we will finish well, that we will have this perseverance. For it is those who persevere to the end that shall be saved. In addition to this, Jesus secured more for us. Our, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. The struggle of sin is over. We stand right in Christ, but at our death... Our souls are made perfect in holiness and to immediately pass to the glory and their bodies still be united to Christ to rest in the grave till the resurrection. When it was finished on the cross, this was settled for our souls and for our bodies. They remain united to Christ. All finished, all secured on the cross by Christ. But if this was not enough, Jesus secured something more for us. One more catechism question. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in that day of judgment and made perfectly blessed for the full enjoying of God forever. My friends, all of this is of Christ. All of this was secured on the cross. He accomplished this, so when he says it is finished, all of this is meant, and so much more. Salvation includes all these marvelous gifts. There's one more thing. Jesus also finished that was needed for our salvation to be applied. Not one of us would have sought God for salvation. None of us seek after God. Romans 3, quoting from the Old Testament, no one seeks after God. None of us would ever have conceived of a way of salvation, nor could we have done anything. The fact of the matter is sinners, we're in rebellion against God. We don't want to draw near to Him. And yet, God... Christ on the cross secured for us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would come to sinners. Christ said it was finished, it was finished and secured and established that this gospel that Christ has secured, this salvation that Christ has accomplished, then can be carried through the working of the Holy Spirit to the life of dead sinners, bringing it to bear through the preaching of the Word of God. So that those who fall under the word of God, the Holy Spirit works generally. People come under conviction. They may come to understand these things are true. And they might think, you know, something needs to be done about that. I need to do something about this. I need to change. And walk away. Still in their sins. When Christ said this finished, it was also secured that the Holy Spirit would come forth with that effectual call. It would make the gospel call effective in the heart of a sinner. Which means that there needed to be a resurrection of a dead inner man. You know, I stress this when we were in John 11 with Naz I mean, uh, Lazarus' death. The four-day dead man is this picture of our heart, our condition. We are filthy, disgusting, revolting corpse. And because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, the Spirit can come and take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Christ secured that. This too was established and finished. 
Finally, there are eternal and everlasting outcomes because Jesus finished work on the cross. When he says it is finished, we also understand that our Redeemer reigns. Our Redeemer reigns. The Spirit of God has reigned. I'm sorry, the Son of God has reigned from all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, yet three persons, equal in power and glory, all ruling equally. I've mentioned this to you before. You know, when God poured out his wrath on the Son, uh, the, known as Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man on the cross, in his deity, the Son of God was in complete harmony and concert with God to punish the sins of his people, even as he bore them. That's a mystery. But this is our God. They all worked in harmony and concert. Jesus has always reigned. He's always agreed with the Father. They've always been in concert and harmony completely in everything they've done. And yet it was the will of the Father that the Son be the Redeemer and that He would redeem those whom the Father gave to Him. And therefore, Paul writes, because what did Christ have to accomplish? He humbled Himself. Think about steps humiliation. He came from glory. His glory and majesty of the living God was veiled by his humanity. He was born of a woman. He was born of a lowly estate. He was born in an animal uh, holding pen. He was born to a poor family. He was made under the law. All these humiliations. He came unto his own and they received him not. They rejected him. Humiliation upon humiliation. He had to walk as the holy son of God amongst sinners with all their corruption. He had to receive that and hear it from them. Such humiliation. And what does Paul write in Philippians 2? Therefore God hath highly exalted him, given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And thus it is upon the completion of his work. When he is raised again after 40 days, Jesus ascended. Back to the right hand of the Father. Now we can understand about that. As the Son of God, He is in heaven. He is God. He's everywhere. But when we hear that He ascended, that is that His humanity, the risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ, ascended to the right hand of the Father. That humanity that's joined with the deity, ascended on high, and God has given to Him to sit at His right hand, that He should judge the nations of the earth as a reward for his faithfulness to go forth into the world and to suffer such humility and such suffering that he was even crucified. He who knew no sin became sin. That he has won the victory and the Father has exalted him and indeed he reigns on high. The throne of David is occupied by David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The throne of God is occupied by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and His humanity. And so it is, even to the end of the age, the Father has given it to Him to judge the nations in time. And we are told that it will be given to, we sing this in one of the incarnation hymns, to a man. A man will judge us with equity. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is what David prophesied. Here's another prophecy fulfilled, Psalm 2. The language is the Son speaking. Yet I, the Father says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, that is, God the Father has said to the Son, the Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. When Jesus said it is finished, this too was established. That he would be exalted on high. That he would sit on the throne of God in his humanity, ruling the nations. The nations belong to the Christ. And he is subduing them so that he will bring all and all is subdued. He will bring it and he will put it under the feet of the Father. So that all, everything in the vastness of creation, all but the Father, the scripture makes clear, will be delivered by the Son. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be delivered up to the Father in full subjection. It is finished. 
this too was finished when Christ completed his work on the cross. So we conclude with consideration. All accomplished. All finished. Jesus bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. The spirit in the body is what it is to be alive. When our spirit's in our body, we're alive. Jesus had a true body and a true human reasonable soul, as we confess. And when his spirit departed his body, he was dead in his humanity. He died for our sins. That we who are dead could live. There was nothing more to be done for salvation. It was satisfied. It was secure. It was complete. It was finished. All that remained then was the resurrection. When this resurrection was Christ was reigned, remember, the Father was said, raised his son. Jesus made it clear the Father had given to him authority, that is power to lay down his life and take it up again. And we're told the Spirit raised the Son. Again, we see God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working in perfect harmony. When Christ was raised, this is the declaration of the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father satisfied with the work of Christ on the cross. And he demonstrates it with a seal, as it were, to raise him from the dead. It was not possible that the grave should hold him. Christ came forth victorious because on the cross he defeated sin, death, and the grave. We'll be looking more at the resurrection in just a few, the next chapter or so. Here's the thing to understand. There's nothing more to be done. And so we go back to those hills 2,000 years ago when the angel saying to the shepherd, said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Monumental words. Great joy which will be to all the people. What was the promise to Abraham? That by your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is what the angel is saying. This is a message of tidings of joy for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, promise to David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Little did the shepherds know that all that was necessary for salvation to be accomplished to save his people was beginning to unfold. It was certain that this child who had come, this one who had come in the form of a child, would accomplish her. And now we hear from the cross that it's finished. We begin with the birth of a baby boy to a virgin mother, just as God had said. God's mighty work of redemption in the most humble of means, in obscurity, in a little town of Bethlehem, the least of all the tribes in Africa, God was accomplishing the greatest work ever. Satan's head was crushed. What difference does Jesus' birth make to you? Because Christmas just is just a holiday of our day. It's part of our Western culture, and, and indeed, it's corrupted with so many things. We were hearing about, you shall have no other gods before me earlier in the service. I submit to you that on this day, as much as, if not more than any other day, there is a gross idolatry in our land when people revere Santa Claus, who doesn't exist, and they marginalize and forget Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns. I will tell you what grieves my heart today that I have heard of Christian evangelical churches who have set aside worship on the Lord's Day because it's Christmas. What do we say to that? That is an obvious form of idolatry. They've taken a so-called Christian calendar and they've elevated Christmas above Christ. they set aside the worship of the living God to celebrate something called Christmas. Totally missing why Jesus came. He came to save sinners. Praise be to God. The God has accomplished all his will. What difference does Jesus' birth make to you? It should make all the difference of eternity. If indeed you're united to Christ by faith, it makes all the difference. If Christ had not come, 
we might have been like those before Christ came, looking for his coming, looking with faith and hope and assurance and a confidence that the promises of God are yes and amen and the one to come, but we dwell after he's come. We have the revelation of his coming. We have the exposition of it throughout the scriptures. We have all the manifestation of the prophecies fulfilled. This day, this birth, this one should make all the difference in our lives. Indeed, he makes all the difference for life. For apart from him, we have no life. He's the only redeemer of God's elect. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. So how are we to respond? My friends, if you come to Jesus with childlike faith, he will save you. And all the benefits that we've talked about, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, peace of conscience, joy of the Holy Ghost, all these will be yours. All these blessings of Christ paid for, dying on the cross, will be yours. And Jesus will be your Savior, and God will be your Father. Come. Come, you sinners, poor and needy. Weak and poor, come to Christ. He will save you. And then with exceeding joy, we can join that angel chorus that ever sings praise to the Lamb of God. We can join those who are already in, the, in heaven, the great host of the righteous men that have come before us, and we will sing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John, I close with this, Revelation 12:10 says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father. What you have accomplished is beyond our comprehension. And yet... We have a comprehension. You have revealed to us so much. Lord, we've only touched upon a little bit of it this morning as we've considered the magnitude of that clap of thunder. It is finished. No doubt words uttered with the last gasp of breath may be only heard as but a whisper, and yet it is a whisper with a redounding or resounding sound even to our day as we have heard. Oh, Lord, our God, we rejoice that the accuser's roar is silenced. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus our Lord, because Christ has finished it. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand together and sing number 250.